1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. A look at the Russian malware used against Ukrainian targets. Actual and potential targets harden themselves against Russian cyber attacks, sanctions and the criminal underworld, Conti's fortunes, a credential stealer resurfaces in corporate networks, black cat ransomware warnings, Tomer Barr from Safe Breach discusses muddy waters. Our guest is Dr. Christopher Emden with a preview of his new book, Stem, Steam, Make, Dream. And CISA releases three more ICS security advisories. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, April 22nd, 2022. The Record has an overview of the Russian malware that's been used against Ukrainian targets, Wiper malware has been particularly prominent so far in Russia's hybrid war. Citing conversations with Ukrainian security officials, they describe Whispergate, Whisperkill, Hermetic Wiper, Isaac Wiper, Acid Rain, Caddy Wiper, Double Zero, and Indestroyer 2. The Straits Times reports that Ukraine has worked to upgrade its defenses, for the most part through implementation of widely understood cybersecurity best practices. This week's joint cybersecurity advisory by the Five Eyes is prompting similar moves in other countries, Bloomberg reports. The energy sector is receiving particular attention, an essay in the Wall Street Journal explains. China, looking on as an observer generally sympathetic to Russia, more or less a tepid ally of convenience, on the familiar grounds that the enemy of my enemy is, well, sort of, anyway, my friend— sees U.S. preparation in cyberspace as dangerous provocation. The Global Times, a Beijing mouthpiece, argues that U.S. defend-forward policy is destabilizing and contravenes international norms of conduct. The U.S. Department of Treasury has taken punitive steps against Russian organizations found to be enabling other groups' evasion of sanctions imposed in response to Russia's war against Ukraine— Of particular note is the addition of BitRiver AG, a prominent crypto-mining venture, to the list of sanctioned entities. For its part, TechCrunch reports, Russia has responded to a tightening sanctions regime by designating various prominent U.S. citizens as henceforth barred from travel to Russia. Their list includes Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, LinkedIn's Ryan Roslansky, and Vice President Kamala Harris. The welcome mat will be yanked from others, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs explained, as it develops and expands its list of Russophobes. They said, in the near future, a new announcement will follow about the next replenishment of the Russian stop list in the order of countermeasures against the hostile actions of the U.S. authorities. There's no particular evidence any of them were planning to, let alone longing, to travel to Russia, but we'll leave that aside. It's a move against leading russophobes. Sanctions designed to inhibit the flow of money to the entities they affect have a collateral impact on the parasitic criminal economy that accompanies legitimate markets. Flashpoint describes the ways in which sanctions against Russia have made it more difficult for cyber gangs to cash out. The takedown of the hydra market, for example, represented a direct interdiction of a traditional cash-out avenue— And not only do the sanctions themselves directly impede the gangs, but the countermeasures Russia is taking to increase central control of its economy are also having an effect. Flashpoint writes that gangland chatter suggests the criminals are looking into peer-to-peer cryptocurrency exchanges, conventional bank transfers that sanctions don't yet reach, and Chinese-run union pay cards. The gangs are also considering hunkering down and Holding their gains in cold wallets until the heat blows over. SecureWorks looks at Gold Ulrich, a prominent operator of what the researchers characterize as Conti Ransomware's name and shame site, and describes how it has adapted to recent revelations and setbacks. Costa Rican authorities are also blaming Conti for attacks aimed at disrupting that country's presidential transition. Six public institutions have been affected. In short, it seems that the incursions into Conti's private chatter by Ukrainian and Ukrainian-sympathizing operators has had a negligible effect on the ransomware's operations. Some observers thought that the privateers would sustain reputational damage from the leaks, but it turns out that the reputation under threat was not the kind of reputation people care about in the criminal underworld. eSentire reports a fresh infestation of more eggs malware across various company networks. The credential stealer is being distributed in a spearfishing campaign that targets corporate hiring managers with fishbait representing itself as resumes from fictitious job applicants. More eggs last surfaced a year ago. The U.S. FBI has issued a flash alert on Black Cat ransomware describing the indicators of compromise associated with this strain of double extortion malware The alert also describes the typical course of a Black Cat attack. The FBI says, Black Cat ransomware leverages previously compromised user credentials to gain initial access to the victim's system. Once the malware establishes access, it compromises Active Directory user and administrator accounts. The malware uses Windows Task Scheduler to configure malicious group policy objects to deploy ransomware. Initial deployment of the malware leverages PowerShell scripts in conjunction with Cobalt Strike and disables security features within the victim's network. Black Cat ransomware also leverages Windows administrative tools and Microsoft sys internals tools during compromise. Bleeping Computer reports that Black Cat has affected at least 60 organizations worldwide. And finally, CISA has released three new industrial control system, ICS Advisories. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Emden. He's a professor of education at the University of Southern California, where he also serves as Director of Youth Engagement and Community Partnerships at the USC Race and Equity Center. He's the founder of HipHopEd.com, and Dr. Emden is author of the new book called STEM, STEAM, Make, Dream, Reimagining the Culture of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math
0: we found that those who were brilliant in science and math actually had a really strong artistic and a creative side. So, you know, in, in, in good wisdom, I guess, or in good research, they decided to include the A in STEM. Um, and so that's how we got from going from STEM to STEAM. Now, unfortunately the movement from STEM to STEAM has not been successful. And unfortunately We still have the overall dire straits when it comes to getting particular populations to be engaged in STEM disciplines. So we're now at this sort of inflection point, like this moment. We said just STEM because they weren't doing well in it. We said STEAM because we thought the arts would fix it, but it's still not working. So where are we now? And that's where I come in. How do we reimagine this idea of STEAM? How do we not say just art, but art and culture, art and ancestry, art and... um and imagination and aesthetics. And how do we reimagine what STEM and STEAM instruction looks like in classrooms? We changed the acronyms. But we never changed the pedagogy and the teaching. And so my work, my mission, even my book, STEM, STEAM, Make Dream, is about how do we reimagine how we introduce young folks to these disciplines? How do we reimagine the arts? And how do we change the landscape of STEM education in this nation?
1: You know, I, I think uh, people certainly recognize the reality that not every school system in the United States is created equal, and there there are you know lots of systemic reasons for that. Does adoption of STEM uh, sort of track along with that? Do the the, the wealthy school systems in, in affluent areas, are they able to, do they have the extra bandwidth, the resources to be able to focus on this where some of the, the uh, communities
0: that are struggling don't? Dave, I'm going to say something really provocative here. And it yeah. is that even the most affluent school districts who we would imagine are preparing young folks to be amazing in STEM are also struggling with getting young folks to retain in STEM, to declare science majors or engineering majors. So we do have an issue with with socioeconomics, right? Young folks in urban settings are not finding opportunities or, or resources are inhibiting them from being able to fully engage. And there are things that we have to do around equity with the distribution of resources, yes. But I also want to make clear that even the affluent school districts who have resources, who have the wealth to be able to introduce young folks to STEM, are also struggling with getting young folks to retain success in there. So the, the issue here is a, is a national issue. And I think the solution is actually the same across the board, which is that STEM instruction must focus on the particular needs of a population, the particular artistic and cultural needs of young people, and must be related to what's going on in their lives every day. Now, if that approach is employed everywhere, I think we get better, but here's where it gets even more interesting: is the recognition that you can't standardize that. You can standardize the approach of censoring culture and censoring youth experiences and censoring uh, and, and censoring, you know, what young people are into and, and and meeting the needs of particular populations. But you will also have to recognize that there are different needs in different places. Right? That more affluent school districts may need something completely different. And those students might have a very different culture than young folks in urban spaces. And and so I think the solution to our problem is to recognize that instruction in STEM cannot be hyper-standardized. It must be localized, it must be unique to the needs of a population, um, and it must bend itself to where young folks are while keeping academic and intellectual expectations high. So we don't sacrifice the rigor, but we recognize that the approach to getting to the rigor must be different based on the different populations. There's no innate genius required to, to have a, a position in science and math. There's no, like, you're not born as a particular type of genius, and that's the reason why you're an engineer. No, it's just that you spend time with it. It's that you love it. It's that when you deal with it, when a, when a problem arises, you sit with that problem long enough to be able to come up with solutions. You're creative and imaginative enough, and you have that stick-to-itiveness to be able to overcome those challenges. And that stick-to-itiveness, that creativity, uh, that, that that willingness to sit with a problem until you can solve it, that 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 willingness to sit for 9, 10, 11, 12 hours with a problem until you solve it comes with seeing yourself as part of that discipline. And so if we deal with the sort of socio-psychological dimensions of this work and convince young folks that science and math are what they can do, I'm not saying they're all going to be scientists and mathematicians. They certainly will feel like it's a part of who they are and they're willing to put in the work to be successful academically. Now, whether or not it's their thing, what happened over the course of the journey, right? A kid can love science, think they're a scientist, and then stumble into pottery and say, you know what? I just want to do pottery for the rest of my life. But I'm a scientifically and mathematically literate person who ends up being someone who's interested in pottery. And so am I like, oh my gosh, I'm into science and math. It's amazing. And guess what? I want to engage in nanotechnology. That's my decision. But I can engage in nanotechnology being a scientifically and mathematically literate person. So my work is about having an equal baseline of perception of self, of basic literacy in these subjects, of basic competency in these projects. And then as life unfolds, if it becomes your thing, you can leap into it and be successful. And if it does not be your, and and even if it's not your profession, it can still be your thing. You can attach that to what your passion is. You know, I want a world where a kid is like, you know what, I'm a writer, but I'm a scientist. I want to be a science journalist. You know, I'm a scientist, but I'm really into swimming. I'm going to find ways to fine tune my body and understand what I eat and train myself with scientific knowledge to be a better swimmer. It's about this baseline of equal scientific literacy and perception that it is a piece of your identity that we have to get to in this nation if we want to close the gaps between the science jobs and the science people.
1: That's Dr. Christopher Emden. The book is titled, STEM, STEAM, Make, Dream. Reimagining the Culture of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. The threat actor Muddy Water, also known as Mercury or Static Kitten was recently attributed to Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security by U.S. Cyber Command. Tomer Bar is Director of Security Research at SafeBreach, and I checked in with him for some insights on Muddy Water.
2: So according to CISA, uh, Muddy Water is a subunit uh, under the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security. Uh, and this APT group has conducted broad cyber campaigns Uh, in support of uh, this ministry objectives since approximately 2017. And they are focused on cyber espionage, but they also use to deploy ransomware as part of their activity.
1: And so what is the current state of Muddy Waters' activities? What, What are we seeing them doing these days?
2: Okay, so they are still active, uh, very active. Uh, They never rest. And the targets are spread all over the globe. Mostly uh, they are focused on uh, the Middle East, but also we see targets from Asia to Africa, uh, Europe, and, uh, and North America as well. And they are targeting different sectors, the oil and natural gas sector, telecommunication, defense, local government, and other sectors. But this is the uh, major uh, sectors that they are targeting, and they are uh, start, uh, stealing uh, victims' uh, data. Also, uh, there are some evidence that they share this stolen data uh, with uh, other malicious cyber threat actors. So, it's very interesting.
1: And what sort of tools are they using to, to go about the things that they do? What are their techniques?
2: Okay, so they're using a lot of techniques, more than uh, 20 uh, different uh, MITRE techniques. Uh, oh. All along the, kill, the cyber kill chain. So uh, for initial access, they usually uh, use uh, spear phishing. Sometimes they use uh, uh, spear phishing mails, including uh, a zip file with an Excel uh, that is a, a contain, includes a malicious macro. And once you are I- enable the the macro, uh, it will run and uh, infect the computer. Will, uh, and the second. Uh, uh, major attack vector is uh, spear phishing using a pdf file uh, that seems legitimate but it drop a malicious file to the victim's network so this is the initial access and after the initial access they use a lot of uh, proprietary tools they have a large arsenal and they're very sophisticated developers because they are developing uh, malware in almost all the possible uh, prog- programming languages. Uh, I can uh, at least say that they are using six programming languages, different ones, C++, PowerShell, VBA, WSF script, Python, JScript, and much more. Uh, cool. So uh, each tool is uh, different and unique. And once uh, the uh, security researchers community thinks that we are capturing the, the, the tool, Uh, The the, the next day uh, comes and pop up uh, 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 their next tool. Sometimes they infect uh, the the same machine with more than uh, one tool. Uh, So uh, if you want, I can uh, uh, detail some uh, uh, important facts on on, on their main tools.
1: So when you're dealing with a threat actor like Muddy Water, who has uh, such a spectrum of tools at their disposal that they're using – what are your recommendations for organizations to protect themselves?
2: Uh, it's a very good question. So, uh, but before that, I will also mention that Mali Water, not only using their own self-developed tool, they are using a lot of public malware and hack tools uh, like uh, Mimikatz, lasagna and, also, and other credential dumpers. And also they are... Uh, commonly use uh, post-exploitation framework, public one, like Empire, PowerSplate, kodiak Codec- and, and RETS. And they are also using uh, GitHub and uh, Pastebin uh, for uh, C2 server. So when customer organization enterprises uh, design their uh, security uh, architecture, they uh, should uh, uh, um, take uh, to their attention that they uh, need to uh, are required to um uh, deal with self developed tool and also uh public tools and communication to uh, legit sites like uh, like telegram like uh like github or like uh, pastebin so it's uh, it's more difficult than uh, other community tools so but there are uh, um few uh, recommendation uh, that uh, uh, the cisa and uh, and we uh, think that will uh, uh, keep you safe uh, so the first uh, recommendation is to deploy uh, application control software and limit which executable code can run uh, by users and uh, extra attention should be uh, paid to the email attachment and file downloaded by uh, via links in emails uh, which usually uh, contains uh, executable code. So uh, these are more suspicious and should be uh, taken care with caution. Uh, another uh, recommendation is using a multi-factor authentication because, as I said, Muddy Water harvesting your credential. Uh, so if you will uh, use multi-factor authentication, uh, usually uh, with... Uh, Temp uh, code or uh, another uh, another um, mean of security like a cellular phone, then you will be uh, most protected. Uh, so uh, multi-factor authentication on web webmail, VPNs, and any account uh, which is the access is critical for the organization. Also limit uh, the use of administrator privileges. This is always good, not just uh, for muddy water. Uh, it will uh, limit the damage that uh, the the threat actor uh, can do when they succeed uh, in uh, uh, achieving the initial access. Uh, Of course, enable antivirus and anti-malware software. Uh, Of course, updating the signature definition in a timely manner because an antivirus, which is not updated, it's like, if you have no no antivirus at all, so, sometimes you can consider adding an email banner to emails uh, received from outside of the organization and disabling hyperlinks in those mails uh, because uh, uh, this is not the majority of the emails and they are more suspicious. Uh, and uh, last but not least, train your user. Uh, it's not just about uh, uh, technology and security controls. The, sometimes the weakest point uh, of uh, cybersecurity are the user, which... Uh, Need just one mistake, and uh, there you are uh, you're, you're welcoming the Iranian APT into your uh, environment. Uh, so do uh, training awareness simulations and uh, recognizing the re- the importance of uh, phishing report and social uh, engineering attempts uh, between uh, between the employees and adapt threat uh, reputation service and uh, finally install. Uh, updates and uh, patches to the operating system, software, and firmware, because uh, Water is using plenty of exploit uh, for, against exchange for, uh, and against Microsoft Office and also against uh, the domain controller uh, in order to achieve domain admin privileges and uh, uh, getting uh, the entire network under their control.
1: That's Tomer Barr from Safe Breach. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. Don't miss this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with John Hammond from Huntress. We're discussing targeted APT activity. Baby Shark is out for blood. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Carp. Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.